0: Well, it's a great joy to have uh, come to our pulpit, uh, Dr. Ryken. Dr. Ryken is, of course, well-known to many of us here and is president of Wheaton College and is not wearing a tie this morning, which is... Uh, but it is Dr. Ryken, really. And uh, it's a great joy, uh, Phil, to have you come to our pulpit and a privilege for us to hear you expound uh, God's word. So let's stand now as we come to the reading of the Bible, 2 Kings chapter 5. And uh, you'll find it on page 311 in the Pew Bibles, and we are going to uh, read from verse 1 through to verse 19, Second Kings chapter 5, and beginning at verse 1. Let's hear God's word. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor So Naaman went in and told his lord thus, and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean." But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Phapa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father... It is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth for from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. Do please sit down.
1: Well, good morning. What a privilege it is to be in College Church for worship, and even more so, to have the opportunity to preach the gospel. Yeah, at Wheaton College, we certainly praise God for College Church. When I think of all the students, faculty, and staff who worship here and have worshiped here over the years, uh, what a difference College Church makes in the college community, but also in the greater uh, city of Wheaton, and uh, what a privilege it is uh, for us as a family to, to worship here and, and uh, having a sense of this more and more becoming the church home that God has for us. My purpose this morning is very simple, I think, to encourage you to live your life by the grace of God rather than making the most out of life on your own let me say that again, to encourage you to live by the grace of God rather than making the most out of life on your own. I think these words about the difference between those two ways of living are very helpful. They come from a very famous person, a rock star, U2's lead singer Bono. He said this, at the center of all world religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physical laws every action is met by an equal and opposite one. It's clear that karma is at the very heart of the universe, I'm absolutely sure of it, and yet along comes this idea called grace, to upend all of that as you reap so you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic, Love interrupts the consequences of your actions, which in my case, says Bono, is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. That's between me and God, but I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. Though it doesn't excuse my mistakes, I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. Now what about you? Are you living life on your own terms, depending perhaps on your own religiosity, or are you counting on, trusting in, holding on to the grace of God through Jesus Christ? Well, I think the story that we've read together already from 2 Kings is all about the grace of God. Let me encourage you to turn again in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5. We'll be looking at the first 19 verses this morning, and if you're interested in the rest of the story, we'll be talking about that tonight. It's a story about a great man. I like to call him Naaman the Valiant. He was the captain of a large army, he lived in Damascus, the capital city of Syria. And as a warrior, he had performed many heroic feats in battle. His name itself meant favored one. All of this, plus the man was popular. He was a great man with his master, the scripture says in verse 1. He was in high favor and for this reason the Lord had given him victory for Syria he was a mighty man of valor. And then this surprise at the end of verse 1, but he was a leper. The man's high position had not protected him from desperate need. Now, some scholars, it's true, have questioned the severity of Naaman's ailment. The biblical term here translated for us as leprosy, can describe a variety of skin conditions. In biblical times, it was not always the life-threatening, limb-destroying disease that we know today. So some scholars have suggested that Naaman was simply suffering from psoriasis and itching and flaking of the skin. But I think there's too much unbelief in these speculations. This was a serious problem. Whatever the condition, it was socially unacceptable and important enough for a a warrior like this to make a long journey to seek a cure, taking with him a vast fortune. I wonder, would he do all of that for an itch? I don't think so. Then consider the response of the king of Israel, Naaman's went to his king. He asked his king to send a letter down to Israel, to Israel's king, asking for help. And when the king of Israel read the letter, verse 7, he tore his clothes and said, "'Am I God that I have the power to kill and make alive?' It certainly was a life or death matter for the king of Israel, this permanent, incurable, maybe even life-threatening disease." It's all the more remarkable, therefore, that the prophet Elisha was able to provide, by the power of God, a complete cure. It's a cure that teaches us many lessons about the grace of God, and I want to share with you this morning five of those lessons. We'll do it fairly rapidly, but there's so much here about the grace of God, and surely there will be at least one, if not two, of these lessons that are important for you this morning. First, let me say we learn from these verses that the message of the grace of God is something that anyone can share. The message of the grace of God is something that anyone can share. And I want to show you how easy it is to share this grace from one person to another. The person who shared God's grace in this story was just a little girl a little Jewish girl that the Syrians had carried off in one of their raids and who now worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She seemed to have everything going against her in life. In fact, it takes me all my fingers on one hand to tell you all the problems she had. She was a foreigner living as a member of a despised race in exile in a foreign land. She was a slave It's true that she lived in a great house, but her life and her liberty were not her own. She was young in a culture that looked down on the inexperience of youth. She was a female in a society that gave all of the prerogatives to males. And further, she doesn't even have, as far as is recorded in Scripture, a name written down. Here's someone with no home, no freedom, no experience, no power, no apparent identity. Compare her to Naaman the Valiant, and she counted for nothing. And yet her life counted for God, and she made her life count for God. I suppose it happened something like this. She was going from room to room in this great house, and she was dusting with her feather duster or carrying in a tray of drinks and she was hearing what people were saying. Everyone in the house was very concerned about their master and his terrible disease. And one day as she was perhaps fixing her mistress's hair or doing some other menial task, she sighed and she said, if only my master would go see God's prophet in Samaria, he would cure him. This is the testimony she gave. You can see it there in verse 3. I think she's one of the boldest evangelists in the Bible. She was the kind of girl whose big brother probably was always telling her she was too little, but she wasn't too little to be used by God. Her faith was massive. Here is the un questioning, bold, confident faith of a child who absolutely trusts that God has the power to do anything. And not even her slavery had shaken her faith. She had not the slightest doubt here that her God had power over Naaman's disease. All he needed to do was go find Elisha and he would be cured. Here's a little girl who believes in God's grace and also is ready to share it, willing to speak a word of testimony whenever she has the opportunity. And that should be an encouragement for us, for every Christian, and maybe particularly for children. Any believer can share the grace of God. You can do it very simply the way that this little girl did. You can say to somebody, if only you would ask God to help your family If only you would ask Jesus to forgive your sins, if only you would give your problems over to the Lord, I know He can take care of anything. Even a little child can share the grace of God, inviting a friend to church, bringing somebody to Backyard Bible Club. You can do it if you're older than that as well. Uh, Commit yourself to speaking clearly about the grace of Jesus with one person on your summer mission trip or with one person on your summer vacation. Sometimes even a very simple word of testimony is all it takes. I love the story that a friend of mine tells about his coming to faith in Christ. He's a gifted doctor, a forensic pathologist. He was living without God in his life. He was very troubled by a variety of problems at home and at work. One day he went down to the basement of the hospital to the morgue, To inspect a cadaver. That's his job. And while he was there in a fairly private place, there was a hospital worker who could take one look at him and see that he had no joy in his life. And he said, I want you to know this morning, Jesus loves you. The man heard that. It was like a light bulb went off in his head. He said, that's what I need. I need Jesus in my life. And immediately he went out to find more about Jesus. In very short order, he gave his life to Christ. Sometimes all it takes is that simple word of testimony. Let me tell you that God's grace is worth sharing because it has cleansing power. Here's a second lesson we can learn from Naaman's story. The grace of God, which is so simple to share, has cleansing power. Now, there are always some people who doubt the power of God's grace. They they look at somebody, they, they see how needy that person is, how big their problems are, maybe how sinful that person is, and frankly, they doubt that that person could ever be saved. I think the king of Israel was like that. He didn't think anything could be done for Naaman. He gets this letter from the king of Syria in his morning post. He practically chokes on his breakfast. Am I God to kill and to make me alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? The king was shrewd enough to understand what was at stake. Just imagine if a powerful enemy came and demanded a cure for some deadly disease, for West Nile virus or Ebola virus or something like that, something feared, despised, incurable. Leprosy was like that. So what was a king to do? Well, he could have taken some very good lessons from that little slave girl in Naaman's house. He should have gotten down on his knees to pray for the help of God. Instead, he concludes that the only way out of his difficult situation is if somehow he himself could possess divine powers. Am I God? He says. Well, he admits that God would have power over life and death, but apparently he forgets that there is such a God and that he can have the help of such a God through prayer. It's a reminder for us to trust in the power of God's grace. I wonder how many people here this morning are in a situation in life that seems beyond any help. Maybe there's an unsaved family member who Refuses to speak about spiritual things. A family relationship so broken you don't even recognize it anymore. Or Maybe you're troubled by racial divisions and how contracted they seem to be. Or people groups in the world that seem immune to the gospel and you've been praying for them, but you don't know how the gospel will ever get through. Whatever the difficult situation in life you're concerned about, there's no need to tear your clothes or complain that you are not God. Instead, come to God in prayer, bowing your head, bending your knee, trusting in the things only the Holy Spirit can do, and pray for the help of God's grace. With Him, nothing is impossible. And so we are called to wait in prayer on the goodness and grace of God. The king of Israel did not do any of this. Neither did Naaman. He also doubted the power of God's grace. And so when Elisha told him to go take a bath in the Jordan River, frankly, he was offended. He wanted to be cured on the spot, and he expected any self-respecting prophet to do a little hocus-pocus to perform the cure. And so he went away angry. Notice his words, verse 11 and 12, I thought that he would surely come out to me and call upon the name of the Lord his God. And wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. And Naaman thought of some of the beautiful rivers in his own country, the Abana, the Farpar. Surely those were better places to gain cleansing than the waters of Israel. Can't I just wash there, he says in verse 12, and be clean. Now I can understand Naaman's objection at least a little bit. He probably felt the same way about the Jordan that we would feel about the Chicago River. Uh, If somebody tells you to go get clean there, you'd think twice about it, that's for sure. But Naaman was really doubting the cleansing power of the grace of God, which has nothing to do with water quality. Any cure would come from the grace of God. Thankfully, Naaman's servants persuaded him that he had nothing to lose, and so he did what was asked. Verse 14, He dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, just according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored. It was like the flesh of a a little child. You can imagine Naaman clambering back up on the riverbank and touching his skin and realizing it was as good as new, as soft as a baby. He could caress the evidence of God's grace in his life. Such was its cleansing power. And that's a picture for us of the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus that is signified in Christian baptism. Baptism in the name of Jesus shows the cleansing power of the grace of God, washing away all of our sins through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And if you've received that sign of God's grace in your own life through baptism, praise God for the cleansing power of His grace. You are clean in the sight of God. And if you haven't been baptized, can I ask you this morning, what are you waiting for? I think, deep down, you probably know that there are things in your life that are wrong that would have to have God's forgiveness to be made right, and Jesus just offers to give you His cleansing grace, just trust in Him and He will make you clean. This is the power of God's grace. But now here is a third lesson about God's grace. And it's a good lesson if you think, perchance, that somehow the grace of God is not for you. Understand God's grace is wide enough to bring in anyone. Here's another lesson about the grace of God. It's wide enough to bring in anyone. I look at this passage, I think Elisha needed to learn that lesson. Oh, he had faith in the cleansing power of the grace of God. In fact, When he heard what the king of Israel had done, tearing his clothes, he sent word right away to set the king straight. Don't tear your clothes, he says, verse 8. Send that soldier to me that he may know there is a prophet here in Israel. You see, Elisha had faith in God's cleansing power. I think it's a little puzzling, his inhospitality. Naaman comes to the prophet's door with his horses and chariots, this mighty warrior, this distinguished out-of-town guest, Elisha doesn't even take the trouble to meet him face to face. I can understand why Naaman was angry about that. I imagine some mighty person, some famous diplomat or general from Syria or somewhere in the Middle East coming to the doorstep of college church and asking about the grace of God to bring cleansing into his life and I imagine uh, Dr. Moody sending out one of our interns to say, here's what Dr. Moody says. He says, go to Northside Park and jump in the lagoon seven times. Uh, you can understand why Naaman was angry about that. He, he went away saying, I thought he would surely come out to me. Now, maybe Elisha was trying to teach Naaman a lesson in humility, or maybe he was simply a patriot. I mean, understand Naaman was a Syrian, and to this day there is no end of hostility between the Syrians and the Jews. Remember, Naaman was the man himself who had conquered Israel in battle, who had carried off the very children of Israel into slavery. Later in this passage, we'll look at this tonight, but uh, when Elisha's servant speaks about Naaman, he refers to him as that Syrian, that leper, and yet God healed the man, and he did it to show the wideness of his grace, which is for Syrians as well as for Jews. Now, whether that's exactly the trouble that Elisha's having, having here or not, I know that's the way that Jesus interpreted this passage, because after Jesus had preached his first sermon in Nazareth and was counting, encountering opposition to his message of the grace of God, he pointed to this passage He said, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus was taking this passage as a story about the wideness of God's grace, that His grace is for the whole world. It's not just for Jews. It's also for Gentiles. It's not just for people who are already Christians. It's for people who are not yet Christians at all. God's ultimate purpose, hinted at in this story, is bringing all nations to salvation in Christ. How sad it is, then, that sometimes people in the church are stingier with grace than God is. They resent the favor that God shows to other sinners, the people they don't really think measure up to the standard of what they think a Christian ought to be, or they want to keep God's grace for themselves. They haven't committed their lives to sharing the gospel with foreigners and with enemies and with people they don't even think deserve to be saved. The truth is that God's grace is wide enough for anyone, even for the most lost of the most lost. God's grace is for people in church who don't understand how much grace they need because they don't really admit how sinful they are. It's for Jews who have not yet accepted Jesus as Messiah. It's for Gentiles still waiting to hear the gospel. It's for people and nations living in spiritual darkness. And I don't know what category of person you think is beyond the pale, whether it's crack addicts or prostitutes or abortion doctors or whatever it is, that person is not beyond the hope of redemption. Keep praying for the most hopeless of the lost, because in the wideness of His grace, Jesus can save them. God's grace is not only wide and powerful, it is also free. It's free grace. We can't leave this passage without seeing that lesson for sure. And it's a lesson that came as a huge surprise to Naaman, who fully expected to pay his own way. Apparently, this man had some experience with medical bills because he took his whole investment portfolio with him. His camels were loaded down with 700 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, beautiful garments, possibly the priestly garments which we know from Syria were covered with gems, embroidered with gold. His riches were vast. The silver in this story alone amounted to five times the sum that Omri, the king of Israel, earlier paid to purchase the entire city of Samaria. Naaman brought these gifts to pay for his cure, which is why after he was healed, he went back to Elisha and said, look, I understand there's no other God in the world but the God of Israel. Now accept my gift in response to what I have received. But Elisha would have none of it. He would receive... Nothing And even though Naaman urged him we see this in verse 16, he continued to refuse. I think Naaman was astonished that his money was no good in Israel. You See, as far as Elisha was concerned, the grace of God had to be something for nothing. That's what grace is. It's not something you purchase. It's not something you pay for. It's not something you atone for. And so Elisha, in his witness to the gospel through this healing miracle, refused to take any payment. For something that he wanted Naaman to understand was absolutely free. The freedom of God's grace is a stumbling block for many people. In fact, really, it's the freeness of God's grace that kept Naaman from accepting it in the first place. He refused to go jump in the river because he was used to solving his own problems. When it came to religion, he thought you pretty much get what you pay for. I mean, if there was a way for him to earn his salvation, at least contribute to it, well, then he would be healed. But notice the marvelous word that his servants speak to him. Verse uh, 13, is it? They say, "'My Father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you.'" This is good news. Listen to it. All he's saying is, "'Wash and be clean.'" Naaman expected salvation to be costly, very costly, but not so costly that he couldn't pay for it himself. He wanted to contribute to his cleansing. I think that impulse is in the heart of every sinner. It's our natural impulse to want to work our way back to God. But grace can't be paid for. That's why it's called grace. There's There's no need to make any large payment or fulfill any great quest. It's utterly and totally, absolutely free. And so when Naaman went back to Syria, he wouldn't be able to boast about the size of his medical bills or tell his soldiers some story of a great pilgrimage that he had undergone. All he would be able to say is, I was was healed by the free grace of a gracious God. And so it is with Jesus. There's no sacrifice you can make to atone for sin. There's no good deed that you could perform that would outweigh your bad deeds. There's no love that you can offer to win God's affection. There's no penance that you can endure to keep off divine judgment. It's by grace you've been saved, the Bible says. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God so if you want to be saved from your sins, the only thing you can do is ask God for the gift of grace freely given in Jesus Christ. And the last thing I want to say to you this morning is that when you do that, the grace of God will change your life. Oh, what a transformation it brings. I tell you, Naaman was never the same man again. Before his baptism, before receiving this gift of God's grace before exercising faith in the word that had been spoken to him by going into the river and receiving cleansing. Before any of that, Naaman was a great man and proud of it. When Elisha failed to greet him, he took it as a personal insult. In fact, the grammar of verse 11 puts the personal pronoun in the emphatic position. Really what he's saying in verse 11 is this, for somebody like me, I thought the prophet would at least come out and help. He's a proud man. He's also kind of an angry man, as proud men tend to be. He had a bad temper. He didn't get his own way in this passage. He stalked off and threw a tantrum. It was only when his servants came to him and cajoled him that he did the thing that he really should have done in the first place. The reason for all of this is Naaman didn't have this transforming experience of God's grace in his life. That's what he needed. Notice how he refers to God in verse 11. It's a small detail, but how telling spiritually the small details of Scripture often are. He's talking about God in verse 11. He he, He speaks here about the name of the Lord, his God. Elisha's God, not, not Naaman's God. He wasn't able to say the Lord my God or the Lord our God. He, all he could say is the Lord his God. It belonged to Elisha, but not to him. He didn't have that personal relationship with the living God, and so it's not surprising his life is characterized by pride and anger and unbelief, which incidentally are struggles for all of us. How selfish we are spending nearly all our time thinking about our food, our clothes, our work, our pleasure, our interests, our entertainment, and how angry we get even when little things in life don't go our way. I tell you, if those are our struggles, what we need is more of this powerful, free, cleansing, life-changing grace of God. It was a different man that climbed out of that river, And the change was more than skin deep. Notice what Naaman said when he went to Elisha. Again, it's a small detail, but it's very significant. Verse 15, he says, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. The grace of God made a believer out of Naaman. And really what he's doing here is making the same confession of faith that the people of God made every day that there is only one God. And even after Naaman went back to Syria, he promised to continue to worship the God of Israel. Yes, he would be in this whole context of pagan idolatry. The worship of Rimean, the people he served, would be part of that. But he's very clear in verse uh, verse, uh, 18, is it? The end of 17, I'm not going to offer any burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. That's where he was seeking grace. His whole life was changing. His relationship with God was changing. His worship was changing. His confession of faith was changing. Maybe the most obvious change, as other people saw it, was in the area of his most obvious sin. Remember how proud Naaman was, how angry he was when he didn't get proper respect from other people. But notice his humility after his baptism. He gets down off his high horse, and when he speaks to Elisha... At the end of verse 15, he says, "'Except now a present from your servant.'" I wonder what Naaman's servants thought when they heard their great commander say that. "'Your servant?' This mighty warrior would now make himself even the servant of a humble prophet. It was pride that kept Naaman from trusting in God in the first place, but when he humbled himself and submitted to the cleansing power of God's grace in his life, he became a humble man. Understand this morning that receiving the free gift of God's grace is a life-changing experience. I would love for you to have that experience in your life. So I want to encourage you this morning to live by the grace of God, not, not live your life by what you can make out of it, but admit that you're the kind of person that needs the cleansing power of God's grace in your life, and trust Jesus for it, and then see what changes He'll bring. Our Father in heaven, we pray for this grace in our own lives. We know we need it, Lord. We, we need you. Those of us who have come to you in faith. We need your grace as much today as any day. Lord, there are also other people we know who need your grace. We think of the missionaries of College Church this morning in far places in the world. They're carrying a message of your grace. We pray that you would bless it unto salvation. But Lord, we wouldn't miss the opportunity to say a word of your grace to the people that we meet, to the people we know, the people we care about, The people who we can see it, Lord, they so desperately need your grace. It's for them we pray and not only ourselves. And we pray for your grace in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.